One of the things that I was just now thinking about, I'm sitting up here and I'm thinking it's lovely to have a room full of people who are all smiling and talking and chatting with each other. You know, It's not that Buddhists don't smile and talk and chat, but normally we, we sit in here in a kind of a you know, classroom way. And it's wonderful to be having a New Year's party. Some of the uh, the emails that people have been sending in who are participating online uh, are that uh, they're enjoying spending New Year's this way. Someone said uh, the black-eyed peas and the collard greens are almost ready. They're cooking away on the stove. Because there's a, very, there's a big tra- tradition, I think, in the South for black-eyed peas and collards on New Year's Day. Uh, the, along with all the other traditions. You know, it's, uh, I've been thinking so much about keeping my mind in a cheerful and appreciative mood. And it's so easy to watch the conditioning undermine the cheerful mood. Like, I, uh, that's a tradition of, of New Year's Day is collard greens and black eyed peas. A tradition of uh, New Year's Eve, uh, you all know, is for in different cities is for people to congregate around some, the big ball in uh, Times Square, for instance. How many people watched the ball fall down on Times Square last night at 9 o'clock here? We did. We actually consider it it's a wonderful thing to live on the West Coast because then you can finish with New Year's at 9.02 and then go to bed at a reasonable time. It's not, you don't have to go home. And I, I, was, I was watching for a while afterwards because people are waiting and waiting, zillions of people, and it's cold in New York, and they're all waiting, and then it's New Year's at 10, 9, 8, 7. And there's a million remarks in my mind that I can see are conditioned by my father who had kind of a mildly acerbic and mildly cynical view of things. Like, what's the fuss about? It's just January 1st. We're just turning a page in the calendar. He was really an understated kind of a guy. He didn't, he didn't like fuss. And I watched the people there who do like fuss, and then it got to be midnight, and they're jumping up and down, a lot of people kissing each other. And I could watch my mind. I was, I was watching my eyes and looking at it, and it's a happy scene. See all these people kissing each other. It makes you happy to see a lot of people kissing each other. And my father's voice saying, what's a big deal? Now they all have to get in the subway. I wonder if the New York subways put on extra trains so it wouldn't be so crowded. So cold. What are they doing? It's the same thing as yesterday. And I watched the conversation between my actual experience, which is, wow, look at all these people. And they came. People came from Des Moines and Houston and all, all kinds of places to be in Times Square. It's not on my bucket list to be on Times Square. But for a lot of people, it was. I could watch my father's view competing with the fact that I was enjoying watching it. And that I knew that both of them were there. And I could say to myself, you know, I don't need you with your view right now. Right now, I could do without views. I could just watch these people who are happy and apparently having a good time. How to watch my own mind from falling into hearing its own stories, uh, why you here on the train, you should have been, you know, don't, don't travel. Of course, I'm, I'm on the train. Why, the answer to why are you here on the train, uh, and that story about I know that my Redeemer liveth, I was there on the train because I was teaching Dharma. I love to teach Dharma. I'll probably continue to teach Dharma as long as I can get on trains. So, and when I can't get on trains, I'll come here. So 
so even the, the question itself is a, is a habitual question, but it's worthless. Uh, <laughs> I caught myself somewhere. This is a mindfulness teaching, but it's a really you know, idiosyncratic to me. I was teaching somewhere on a very hot summer day. It was very, very hot, as it often is here in, in the summertime, as you know. And uh, I, at the end of a, of a day of teaching, I guess I was walking up the hill, and my mind started in to say, I'm so tired, really so tired, really tired. Then all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute, not tired, hot, hot, <laughs> but not tired. Then you have to even watch that, you catch yourself, if the, if the mind is set to, when in doubt, complain, you know, that... Um, <laughs> It complains, and it actually... Maureen Stewart, who was a Zen teacher of, of considerable renown, died in the last decade, probably the last five years. And uh, they said about her that uh, her last utterance when she was dying... You know, Zen teachers are supposed to save their most pithy teaching for the last minute. And with their last breath, they say out, form is emptiness and emptiness is form, or whatever it is that is the Zen and enigmatic thing to say. So hers was not enigmatic. She said, um, apparently, with that last breath, uh, thank you very much, I have no complaints. <laughs> and I think that's fantastic. I hope she really did say it. And with the last breath, not apocryphal, but even if it's apocryphal, it's great. Because I would like to be able to say it. My, my daughter said to me, what are you going to say, Mom? I said, well, I'm not a Zen teacher, so I don't have to think about that. <laughs> I said, well, what would you say if you had to say it? I said, I don't know. What do you think I should say? So she said, well, how does it have to be? Well, it just has to be a few syllables and be a pithy remark. She said, well, why don't you say, housework is a waste of time. <laughs> so... But, you know, if someone gave me that as a Dharma thing, I, would, I could elaborate on it. I could say housework could be a waste of time if you didn't use the time to be mindful of what you're doing. If you thought all the time how the work you were doing was making your house into a sanctuary and providing a comfortable life for people, it could be just time that passed waiting for a contemplative time. But it doesn't have to be nothing. It has to be a waste of time. People say I had two hours to kill in the Denver airport. Say so, ah, I, when people say that and I hear that, I think you you have no hours to kill at all. I mean, our lives are are bound. This 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 short life is bounded by a long sleep, and we really can use every bit of time to be working on how's my mind and is my mind prepared to make a comfortable context for whatever it is that's arising in it. I knew that sometime today I would get to read this poem, so I brought it. And now is the moment that arises in my mind. Because uh, I really do think that if we think about the big screen and the little screen, we're supposed to have that. We're wired that way. It's important that I remember where I live and where to, you know, when to pay the mortgage and what my phone number is and all those things and my family and what it needs to take care of them and be interested in them. But if that's all I'm doing, then I miss not only the splendor and the wonder of thinking, what's it like to be, look at this life in this world, never mind what's happening with the wars, not never mind the wars and the poverty, mind it, 
But on top of that, that it's happening, that here is this rock in the sky, still as of this morning in its same orbit, predictably where it's supposed to be, with the, with the time changing and the light changing, and the crops rotate, the, the seasons of planting rotating, and people borning and people aging and people dying and people marrying and falling out of love and unmarrying, people doing all these things. This enormous pageant of life is happening. And there's a way in which when I look around and I see that, whether it's I think about it in my mind right now, or I look, on, on the, I look in the subway and I see 50 people in the subway car and I think every one of these persons has a whole universe, a whole life going on. Everybody's got a whole life in their body and their mind and all these people have bodies and minds and families. You think, wow, this is awesome if I look at that. And it's, a, it's an amazing miracle that we're all here again and still in this awesome resuming of life, breath after breath. That's the awe and the wonder of being alive. In addition, I think, to the importance of recognizing the degree of suffering in human minds and in human life from ignorance, which I think inspires in us a desire to end our own suffering and act on behalf of other people's suffering, in addition to that, if we only saw suffering in the world, I think it would be too overwhelming and too tedious. At the same time, to be able to see life itself is a sacrament. It's an amazing thing. And here we are, all of us. You know, we're, we're not attached. We're not plugged into something. Here we are, each of us making our way through this life from when we start to walk until the end of our life and locomoting, doing all these things. It's amazing. And that we get up day after day and want to get up again. That's amazing. And to be able, I think what we have really the promise and the possibility of doing is in this brief life to so train or teach, that's a better word, so enable our minds to hold this all with awe and wonder and care and love so that the fact that it's happening just carries, carries the uh, energy to inspire staying in life and doing the best you can and meeting the suffering in the world with everything that you can. The suffering in the world as well as the suffering in this little picture over here. But you need to be able to make the picture bigger than this little thing over here. It's so easy when the mind gets startled for it to collapse into complete self-absorption. This just happened to me. Sometime, not so long ago, my whole family was at some family wedding or something or other, something, something. And everybody together, lots of relatives that I hadn't seen in a long time. I was having a good time. And some relative came by and said something to me that was really, was, was, could be taken as an insult. It was an insult, actually. <laughs> And I took it that way, and I, felt, and I felt so disarmed by it. And I must have had a furrowed brow or something. And one of my daughters, of course all my sons and daughters are all adults, went by and said, Ma, what's the matter? And I said, I can't believe it. Cousin so-and-so just said X, Y, Z, whatever cousin so-and-so just said. And it really hurt me so much. In my mind, I can't even, I can't even enjoy myself. And she looked at me, she said, Mom, get a grip. That was 10 seconds out of your whole life. You know? I 
thought to myself, whoa, get a grip. That was 10 seconds out of your whole life. It's always 10 seconds out of your whole life. And we not only don't get a grip and remember that, but it grips us. And then we continue and we lose seconds out of our whole life. So here is the, that's such a big lead up to one of my, one of my favorite poems. This is Billy Collins. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast. But I can still hear him, muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for a barking dog. When the music finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor, who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. I love that. I think that's amazing. I think of it all the time that what, you know, you need a bigger space. Get a grip, mom. There's 10 minutes, 10 seconds out of your whole entire life. Everything is. And we take umbrage and we run with it. I'm sure that that has to do with our nervous system that wants to teach us who is safe to be around and who not. But alas, if it teaches me in this moment, I'm happy to tell you that I can't remember which cousin said that unpleasant remark to me. So I'm glad wherever it is, it was a momentary thing. You know, probably all the better that I meet that cousin without that piece of baggage. I think that, oh, I had thought to myself, well, we'll do all the metta practice in the afternoon. It's now afternoon. I think that, but that we mostly don't meet people without their stories. We meet people trailing their stories. Here comes a person around the corner on 4th Street. And you think, oh, there's so-and-so. Great, I haven't seen her in a long time. Terrific. Because you're remembering how it was a long time ago when you saw her. And at the same time, you're going down 4th Street and someone comes out of a store right into your path. You say, oh, you know, there's so-and-so who two years ago in a meeting said something very uncomplimentary about my point of view because then we remember that. And here's somebody who never answers my phone call. And here's somebody who, what if we forgot all the little things that everybody had done because they did it maybe in a moment of inattention, even in a moment of attention and ineptitude because they were motivated by some startle. Why do we carry around that stuff a whole life? You know, it didn't do us in, whatever it was. I loved uh, thinking about... Uh, I was at a big, big conference once when the Dalai Lama was doing a week-long teaching on... Um, uh, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And he had a translator next to him, and he would read it in Tibetan, and then he would comment on it in English. And the translator was right here in case he needed some help, but mostly his English is very good. 
and he would talk and talk and talk, and he say in English, and then the translator at one point stopped him, and said, apparently was saying, "No, Your Holiness, it doesn't say that; it says this," because he read the text wrong or something. And you think, "Wow, correcting the Dalai Lama." <laughs> Dalai Lama looks at him and says, "No, it's da 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 da," and he says, "No, it's da 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 da," and no, it's da 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 da. No, really, it's da, da da And he goes back, and he's looking at it in the text, and he sits up, and he laughs, and he says, you're right, I made a mistake. Ah! <laughs> in the front of 2,000 people that he's doing an exegesis of text, I thought to myself, you have to have pretty little ego to be able to say in front of everybody, I just made a mistake. But you know, most of us would not like to make a mistake. We remember the one time in the sixth grade play that we forgot a line, or the one time that we missed our place in the in the in the music or something, because those are shocking times and they uh, they frighten us, and then we remember them. I often say to people, "What if I told you that I could I have an herb that I could put into this water that is a colorless herb, and that you couldn't tell that it had anything in it, and it tasted like water, <clears throat> but you would forget." All the antipathies that you have from your whole life, all the little slights, all the little annoyances, all the, all the unpleasant stories about people that you have in your, in your uh, what do you call it, um, hard drive. Would you come and have a sip? Who would have a sip? Who would not have a sip? Why would you not have a sip? <laughs> well, it is grist for the mill. There you go. What's your name? Jay. Jay. It is grist for the mill. It gives you something to work on. Um, that's one way to look at it. That's a perfectly valid way to look at it also. The same as unpleasant mind states that arise are things to work with. Uh, I think that I would be, of those grists for the mill that I could dispense with, I think I'd, I'd loosen up more of my quotient for benevolence if I wasn't busy remembering them. Do you know, the, do you remember the, the, um, in the Mikado, there's the Lord High Executioner, you remember that? And he, at some point he pulls a scroll out of his pocket and he says, he sings, I'm the Lord High Executioner and I've got a little list of people who never would be missed. And I think each of us have little lists of people who never would be missed. But the thing about having a list is you have to remember who's on it. And that takes up a certain amount of energy. So I think to erase the list might be good because you can't decide to be finished with the mind states. And that's also grist for the mill. But you know, Jay, the truth is I had, a, I had a grudge on somebody for 10 years, which is a, you know, an embarrassingly long time for uh, a professed Dharma teacher to have a grudge on somebody. <laughs> and after 10 years, maybe about 10 years, one of my very close friends said to me, we were talking about metta practice and what a difference it had made in our lives. And... Um, she said, so really, Sylvia, do you have anybody in your life that you have not opened your heart to? 
And I said, well, the truth is, is one person, but uh, she said, you know, you want to tell me? So I told her the story about this happened, and he said, actually, he wrote me a letter. He didn't say it, and in the letter, I read the letter, and ah. And we never spoke to each other again after the letter, and all these years went by. She said, that's the only one, your whole? I said, that's it. She said, if there's only one person standing between you and totally loving all beings, <laughs> don't you think you could get over it? <laughs> That's a perfectly good question. <laughs> but you see, we hold on to it, you know, because we're so offended. But really, the hold on to it is a really important. Why do we do that? That seems so contrary to being happy. Some time later, after that, I was on my way to some conference. The person involved was a person I sometimes met in, uh, oh, thank you. I sometimes met in, uh, <clears throat> I have coffee in there, but it's hot too. That I sometimes met in uh, teaching venues, a fairly local person. And um, when we met, we were certainly, I mean, we said hello, but not in any kind of a cordial way. We'd been good friends. We'd been seeing each other regularly and meeting and talking. And on this particular occasion, I had been driving to that place, and it had been my way. Often I'd be going someplace and I'd think, oh, so-and-so is probably going to be there. And then I would think my thing. Why did he say that about me? How could he have said that about me? How could he have said that about me? Which inflames the mind over and over again. And on this particular occasion, after 10 years or so, I was driving to this, wherever I was going, and it occurred to me as I was driving that this person might be there. And I thought, how could this person have said that about me? And then I thought, he said it because it's true. And I thought, ah. So I used a lot of energy for 10 years to keep that from surfacing. So I said hello to him in a cordial way. Hello. And he said hello, but you could tell that it was different. And at the end of the evening, he said, you want to have lunch? And I said, yes, and we had lunch, and then we had lunch another month later, and more lunches. And then at one point, I said, we should talk about the 10 years that went by. <laughs> Because we were in the here and now, okay? We are talking about what is everybody doing now. Talked about, so what happened? So I said, well, I got that letter from you, and uh, I thought, how could you have said that about me? And then I thought about, I thought that for 10 years, and then one day on the way to meeting you, I thought, how could he have said it? And I thought he said it because it's true. And he said, no, it's not. <laughs> but it was, actually. It was actually, it was a little true. It was all, I mean, it's probably also true that he didn't have to say it in quite such a stark way. And if I had been at the moment more calm and more open-minded and more mature and more self-confident, I could have said, in what way do you think that's true? We could have talked about it and skipped that whole contretemps for 10 years. But, you know, we did. We didn't skip it. We did have those years. But we then became friends really well after that. So I think sometimes that we trail those stories as protections, lest they happen again, 
or lest we listen to them and uh, really have to see something about ourselves. I don't know what Cousin X said to me that distressed me so much. Maybe it was true what Cousin X said. Who knows? But probably it would have helped me. If I was Shanti Deva, writing the, which I'm not, writing the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, would say about, he talks about how not to take umbrage about whatever anybody says about you. He says, suppose somebody says something that, um, uh, uh, something about you, derogatory. said, you should think to yourself thus. Is it true? said, if it's true, you should be grateful that this person Picked it, picked, gave you the information so that you could work on that. So you could think about that person as your teacher. He said, and if it's not true, what's the problem? So, but we don't think that. I think the problem is he thought that. And he probably told people, or if he didn't tell people, he thought it. And I know he thought it, and all that stuff. How about just saying, really, you thought that? Why did you think that? That would be very straightforward. We make so much stories about stuff. So I want to go back to a question that I asked before lunch. I said, what happened to you while you sat for that period of time trying to bring your attention to this moment? Talking about meditative techniques. We've done the technique of coming to Techniques that content the mind. That's the name of today. What techniques content the mind? Visiting with friends contents the mind. Listening to Dharma contents the mind. Sitting quietly contents the mind. Uh, saying to oneself, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, contents the mind. Um, what else did we do? Being with the breath in this moment as it arises and passes away contents the mind. When you were being with your breath, what else happened for you? Did anybody feel sleepy? Anybody felt sleepy? Is it, probably everybody felt a little sleepy, or maybe not. Some people felt sleepy. Did you get annoyed with yourself for feeling sleepy? Yeah? People feel sleepy. You know, especially they're in a warm room with friends, and they ate breakfast, and they feel relaxed. Now the things about when, when the, the mind focuses and starts to content itself and calm down, it comes right down and falls asleep. <laughs> the art of mindfulness, really, is keeping the mind contented and relaxed and awake. Peaceful and alert. I think that was what was, you know, the Barry Center for Buddhists. The, the, Bar- the Insight Meditation Center in Barry, Massachusetts, also the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, are both located in a town called, ba- <coughs> called Barry in Massachusetts. And this is a, this is a, a true story, although it's a, and it's amazing, that when the property came available to be bought in 1972 or three, and people around Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein were planning to uh, invest this money in building the in buying a meditation center, and did. Uh, those three people went to check it out and see how it was, and it's a wonderful place. It still is a wonderful place, 
and they liked it a lot, but they said, you know, this is a big deal, it's a very important decision. Let's go into Barry and have lunch before we say absolutely okay. And they, and they went into the little town of Barry, which is quite a small town, and they found that the town has an insignia that's written on the police cars and it's written on the, ins- on the sh- insignias on the, on the police uh, uniforms. And the uh, motto of Barry, Massachusetts is tranquil and alert. So they decided we should build here. <laughs> tranquil and alert is what you want. Not tranquil and sleepy, tranquil and alert. But the, the, the reason I asked the question, did you feel bad about falling asleep, is really what I have discovered, or what I've really learned after all these years, is that the art is not to not ever feel sleepy. Sometimes you feel sleepy. It's not to make a fuss about it. It's the commentary after the sleepiness. Like you wake up from sleeping and you startle yourself awake. You say, ah, oh, I was sleeping. I wonder how long I slept. I wonder if I snored. I wonder if I annoyed the people next to me. I wonder if I missed some important instruction. That, where was Paula about the important instruction? That, you know, we're always so worried we'll do something wrong. What if you missed an important instruction? It'll, you know, it couldn't have been that important. It'll come back. It'll recycle. How many people felt uh, a little restless as we sat? Anybody thought to themselves? <laughs> Anybody thought, when is that bell going to ring? Anybody thought that? You know, sometimes the mind, for whatever reason, gets a little restless and it wants the bell to ring. Many, many years ago, this is an important story. I love to have a chance to say it. Many, many years ago, I was newly in practicing and sitting on the floor because it was many, many years ago and I could do that. And uh, my knee started to hurt. And uh, I thought, they better ring that bell soon. And then I thought, they really better ring that bell soon. And if they don't ring that bell soon, I'm never going to be able to stand up. This is it. You know, I've ruined my knee here. So stupid to come because well, what happens to your knee? And I'm too old to do this. And that bell better ring because otherwise I'm going to be the first person in history to explode. <laughs> and then I heard the bell. And I said, whew. And I opened my eyes, and there had not been a bell. I had hallucinated the bell. (laughs) And the reason it's such a good story, completely true, I assure you, is I want to say that the mind can do anything. It can hallucinate a bell if it had to. And not only can it hallucinate a bell... You know, by the way, the people who stopped smoking know that they dream that they're smoking. And then they wake up startled because they're afraid they're smoking in bed. They kind of know they're in bed, and they're dreaming that they're smoking, and then they put the two of them together. So I close my eyes again, and I wait, and then I hear. I think, ah, this is it. Open my eyes. Nothing. Everybody's just sitting. Sit a little bit more, and I hear the bell again. And this time I think, you know what? I'm not moving. (laughs) I'm not even getting my hopes up about this. And then I open my eyes, and everybody's moving around. 
and getting up, and I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, that's really far out. I completely hallucinated that whole thing. How could I have done that? Completely hallucinate that whole thing. Meanwhile, 60 seconds are going by, and I'm not springing up, and my knee is not hurting nearly as much. And the reason I tell you that story is it has a twofold, two levels of meaning. One, the mind can do anything. It can imagine what it wants to imagine and believe it. I know you're angry at me. I can tell you're angry at me. I can see from your look that you're really angry at me. You're covering up for it, but I can see that you are. The kinds of things that we get into ridiculous squabbles with people. I know that that means this. We don't know anything. We make it up, and then we confirm it with what we see are confirming movements or clues. So one, we make up everything. It's a story in the mind. And the second is the, the, the awareness of the difference between discomfort and suffering. Now you can have some discomfort in your knee. You can have a lot of discomfort in the knee. And you can have a lot of discomfort in the knee, and you can have a mind that says, you know, a lot of throbbing and heat and a lot of desire to move. And probably, if this goes on very long, then I'll move, but relax, take a breath in. It's probably going to end soon. Everybody can't sit forever. The mind really relaxes itself around the discomfort. People do that around childbirth all the time. They say, this is going to be over soon. Someone tells you two more pushes. So, oh, just two more pushes. Hey, I'm into that. You know? And you get all kinds of resolve behind you at that point. That's the difference between being frightened when we tighten up in our body and in our mind or not being frightened, and then we let things happen in a natural way. I sometimes think it's good that I teach in person and that especially that we have video, because sometimes I think to myself, how would I teach about the nature of the mind letting go or Ajahn Sumedho's instructions if I couldn't do them with my hands? But I, ra- I actually think that the mind actually is like that. When it's startled, it does like that, and it all grabs onto something and th- loses out on seeing the limitless possibilities. And when it stays relaxed, it says, okay, this is what's happening. Let's see what happens next. What should I do now? When you think about it, that's so brilliant. I've, I've, since since I, I was on retreat here in February, in March, and Gil taught that, and I thought, oh, well, I never heard it quite that way. Because when our minds can be relaxed in that way, let's see what happens next. Then our own natural goodwill is available for ourselves and for other people. That we really have an, an openness to whatever we meet. When I was just re- enumerating a little while ago what could have happened. You could have gotten sleepy. You could have gotten annoyed. You could have think, what am I doing here today? I could be watching those bowl games today on the, uh, or gone on that picnic or something. You could have been thinking, um, nah, I won't even go through. You could have been thinking, I shouldn't be here. This is unpleasant. It's pleasant. Uh, <laughs> no, but you could have been thinking, you could have been thinking some sort of remark like, I wish that we were already in the new hall when we weren't feeling so closed in by the ceiling. I wish we already had, It would be better if we were in a place with all the windows where we'll be in a year. It would be better if this or that. 
The mind is often thinking it would be better if. We're in any situation and we think, oh, it would be better if I had brought a lighter sweater, a heavier sweater, a, a this or a that, something to make myself more comfortable. And that really what the, what the a central uh, trick or capacity of the mind I haven't used this word in a long time because I haven't remembered it in a long time. But when I first heard it as a new student, and one of my teachers said, your mind becomes malleable. It's malleability of the mind. It's a little cold today. All right, it's cold. But the room is warm. It's a little this, it's a little that. Um, You know, when I said before about pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, sometimes I think uh, we... Uh, I I give people the assignment of spending a whole day and instead of being with your breath, just watch how pleasant and unpleasant and neutral keep arising and passing away. You watch throughout the day you get up and you say, oh, waking up unpleasant. Okay. (laughs) But you look out and you say, oh, look at that. Beautiful sunrise. Pleasant. Okay. Uh, No hot water. Unpleasant. Okay. Out of ginger tea, unpleasant. Oh, look, there is ginger tea up there. Pleasant, great, great. That all day long we're disappointed and pleased and disappointed. Good, good, fooey, fooey, good, fooey, fooey. And then at the end of the day, the mind is exhausted. And to be able to say, look, may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? Exhausted. We don't have to. We could live more lightly in our lives. How many people, well, I don't have to say that because uh, it, it has you confess to something that probably everybody had but maybe doesn't want to say. This is a great poem. This is Rumi on how to meditate. The human being is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. I love this, this I'll start again. I don't mean to stop in the middle of Rumi. But you know, I always have the vision of a guest house that you open the door. It doesn't say you open the door, but I think about, you get up in the morning and you open the door and you think, who has come to visit? You know, all those, all those uh, uh, I'm, expressions like, I'm having a bad hair day. You know, you don't plan on it. Or I'm having a, a migraine day, or I'm having a this day or that day. You don't plan them. This human being is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of his furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice... Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Maybe, Jay, that's like what you said before about grist. You know? Here comes this mood that I don't like. Here comes this person who I have an unpleasant feeling about. Here comes this whatever it is that's coming. How can I be here for it and say, this is what's happening now? Didn't expect it, but here it is. 
which when you think about it, I think I'll tell this story right now because otherwise I might forget to and I wanted to tell it to you. It was in, uh, it was in something this week, the Smithsonian Magazine, I think, or something. It's a story about a, a child who actually, in an accident, who survived quite miraculously. And it touched me a lot because when you think about uh, all the times, it happened the same day that the Asian air plane fell down. And so I was thinking a lot about all the things that happen in a day that you didn't plan to have happen. You know, that we are sometimes parted from things in our life that we have some lead up time about and then we expect them so they're not startling in the same way. But like an airline disaster like that. Uh, on the same day, I read a story about a boy who was a six-year-old boy who was uh, uh, on a camping vacation with his parents from Illinois or something, and they'd come out to Nevada where there are certain sand dunes in some uh, particular place known for its sand dunes. And he and a six-year-old friend were running around up and down the sand dunes, just running up and sliding down and running up and sliding down. And that suddenly into what looks in the picture to be a kind of a sinkhole, he falls into a hole. And he falls into a hole, and the sand falls in over him. And the companion calls out to the parents. But he'd fallen, it, it's apparently a deep hole that, that makes itself, that somehow is formed by some sort of underground that explained how it happened. Anyway, the parents come running up, and of course they're distressed, and everybody starts digging. And uh, the person who wrote the article said, "I was sure." I, I said, "That's you know, he can't be here. He must have gone away somewhere else, or maybe around the corner." Anyway, they keep on digging where his companion says it was right here, and they find him alive in such a uh, in an area where something had happened with an. It used to be a forest now underground in a desert, and there's a kind of a fossilized tree that, that makes a sort of a space uh, under the sand where, in fact, he was encapsulated in that space. He was actually unconscious because he breathed in all the sand, but he got pulled out by paramedics and taken to a hospital and siphoned out the sand, and you see him leaving the hospital two weeks later, and he's okay. And I tried to imagine how could it have been for these parents to have, you know, you, t you turn around, your child is playing in the sand, and the next second it's disappeared into a desert somehow. And the thought was so dismaying to me. It's, and it's not any more or less horrifying, I suppose, than, than the Asian air suddenly. You don't expect it. It's like the mind can't hold that kind of thing. The times in my life when someone is called and said Stan's plane crashed into a mountain in Napa. And it did. And, you know, the day before you'd known that he was going to go fly his plane up there. 
and people gone. We think those startle us so much, more than in the fullness of time and unexpectedly. But the truth is, I think that we never know. And if, not, not for any of us, we don't know. And if we knew it, everybody would drink that water so as not to mess up the rest of their life, I think. That would be that. That would be what would happen. If we really knew that, because when that happens, you know, it's kind of the story I told you earlier about uh, when my husband's life was imperiled and I said, this is it, never a bad thought. And then, of course, it's not imperiled and you have bad thoughts again, you know. <laughs> but what would it be that would so thoroughly impress in my mind that there are certain things that are important and other things that are not. And that wishing well and having a benevolent mind state and not keeping a list of what we don't like about people is really the way to use this life so that we most fully are alive in it. Maybe we just have to do that as people. There's a Zen story, and then we'll sit. There's a Zen story. How does it go? Wait. There's a Zen story about a monk who's walking along a cliff and uh, meditating serenely, and uh, a uh, tiger rushes out of the jungle and is chasing him. And there's no way to get away except jumping off the cliff. And down the cliff at the bottom is a roaring river full of rocks. And there's a vine hanging over the side of a cliff. And the monk grabs the vine and jumps over the side of the cliff and hangs on. So here he is hanging on the vine on the, over the cliff, swinging and looking down. And there's a big river crashing below him. And there's a, lion, a tiger looking over the top and roaring and menacing at him. And here he is on the vine. And at that point, a mouse comes out from a crevice in the rock and starts to chew on the vine. <laughs> and at that time, he notices that there's a strawberry growing out of another crevice in the rock. And he picks the strawberry and eats it. And he says, that was a really good strawberry. <laughs> I saw that, that's a good story, isn't it? I saw that uh, we were in Korea uh, some number of years ago, and their temple paintings are enormous tempera paintings on the wall in bright colors. And that particular story was one of the most prominent ones, showed up in temples all over the place. And I think that's the story of all of us. We are all hanging off a vine. And we all don't know when the mouse is chewing and when it's not chewing and how close it is because we are all hanging in between being born and the end of our lives. And we don't know when a car is going to rush out of the around the corner or a plane is going to fall out of the sky or a hole is going to open in the desert or a tsunami is going to come up on Phuket. My cousin was on the beach in Phuket on the day of the tsunami, and he left four hours before the wave hit to go back 
to Australia where he lived. But he could have not. He could have been there. So you don't know. One of the poems that I carry around with me all the time is... It's called Otherwise. And it's by Jane... Canyon. I get out. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. Oh, that's me who's making this disagreeable. (laughs) Sorry about that. You know, that I'm thinking to myself, maybe I'm being too lugubrious, but it's not lugubrious, it's real. We don't know. One of the... I, I, I find myself, this morning, I, I listened to myself telling a story about my mother 60 or 70 years ago, 50 years ago, that same mother, when I was an adolescent, uh, on a particular day that I was probably slamming one too many doors in the way that teenagers slam doors when they get annoyed. And my, mine was a very mild-mannered house. I, I, came, I have the very good fortune of being the only child of two people who were best friends and loved me tremendously. So that's really a, like an extremely good fortune. And what's more, my grandmother lived with us, for whom I was an only grandchild. So everybody thought I was terrific. So, <laughs> And they were nice to each other. So better than that, you don't get in terms of being dealt a, a hand of cards to play. But on one day of adolescence, throwing myself around, my mother said in quite a quiet voice, she said, you know, Sylvia, you're not going to get to do this day over again, ever. And I thought, ah. You know, mostly they never said anything that even sounded mildly like a rebuke. And that was one, but I think of it sometime. We're not going to get to do this day again. So we make amends for stuff and we apologize. But I want to fix it up before I do stuff. I want to have that intention for my new year. Every year when I make intentions, I think, I really so want to have in mind what's important and what's not important that I don't accidentally say anything. Wrong. (laughs) Now, sometimes we say things that um, we don't might mean to be a rebuke. We have dressed them up in as a helpful hint. (laughs) Don't you think it'd be a great idea if? But it's actually a little bit of a criticism, you know, when you think about it. So I'm hopeful that we can do some practice now of 
uh, really working on goodwill for ourselves and for other people. I don't know what's better to teach than just relentlessly trying to have a good heart. I think it's our own, it's really the, the best refuge that we have is our own benevolent heart. When I am kind, I'm happy. Thinking about other people and being interested in how they are. Many decades ago, actually, now, my next-door neighbor, who was older than we were by a generation, died in his own home, in his own bed right next door, of a, of a, of a cancer that wasn't treatable anymore. And I visited him quite near the end, and he had all these bottles of medicine around him in his bed. And uh, he said uh, he was really in a lot of pain by that time. And he, said he was a physician as well. So he had morphine among all the medicines that he had so that he could, he said, you know, I'm in charge of my own morphine. I can give myself morphine whenever I want. So he said, you know, I could at any time give myself too much morphine and be finished with this. He said, but every time I'm about to do that, I think to myself, you know, I have a niece in L.A. who just started her own business, and I have some ideas about how she might... <laughs> actually make it successful. So I have to phone her up, and then I, the next time I feel like it, I think to myself, I, you know, I really can't take this anymore. Then he says, well, but I have a nephew in Atlanta who's getting married, and I have some ideas for him and his wife, so I, I really can't do that. And I thought to myself, and eventually he died. But I think, I thought at the time, and I remember him all the time by that, that he lived until he died that he really lived in relationship to all these people, in loving relationship to other people, having other lives, until the end of his life. My friend Tamara, who died a few years ago in a hospice in uh, Fort Lauderdale, who was a mindfulness teacher, a wonderful teacher, uh, on the very last day that I spoke with her on the phone, she had people holding the phone with her. She said, uh, this is really hard, so it's really... They say, well, you know, it won't be long, sweetheart. You're doing great. And she said, no, it's really very, very hard. But she said, wait a minute, I have to thank the nurses here. They're just fixing my, my pillows and my sheets here. The nurses here are fabulous. They have taken such good care of me. Thank you very much, thanking everybody around there. And I thought, I want to do that. We are all role models for each other. We don't have to read about what this one did or what that one did, or this sage or that sage. When we behave sagely, we are role models for everybody else to know that this life is a doable thing, and we can do it lovingly. When the Buddha finished teaching, uh, uh, he gave a certain sermon when he was discharging a bunch of monks I like to say also and nuns, doesn't say that, but monks and nuns to teach all over the place when he, they'd been with him a long time. He, in their instructions to the departing monks, said, teach the Holy Dharma in the idiom of the people. And I think probably he meant teach in Gujarati or Hindi or Urdu or whatever people speak, spoke. 
But I like to say that to people when we spend a day together or any time together. Teach the Dharma and the idiom of the people so we all are Dharma teachers. Wherever we go, when we behave with patience and kindness and generosity and truthfulness and thoughtfulness and all those things, we teach the people around us and we make this a better world. And we make our lives better. Let the mind and body, this is, we have two more instructions to give because I'd, I'd really miss it if I didn't tell you this one. I love this instruction. This instruction comes from Ajahn Amaro, who's now the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in London. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. I love that. It doesn't say, see if you have natural peace and ease. It says you do. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and stay that way. Pay attention to whatever disturbs the natural peace and ease. That could be your whole practice. Let's do it now. Sit, eyes open, eyes closed. That's the instruction. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and stay that way. Only be alert to the arising of anything that disturbs the peace. And when you're aware of it, in the awareness, the peace and ease will likely return. Otherwise, relax and it will return. No problem. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and stay that way.
like to invite you to stay quietly sitting. I hope in natural peace and ease. Just enjoying sitting here. As I sat here, I remembered uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's instruction. I thought, oh, I should say that too. His important instruction was thinking to oneself, breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. Try that for a minute or two. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. The whole body relaxes when you smile. In the awareness of how much we each wish for ourselves, that we have peace and ease, contentment, the ability to smile, even to laugh at ourselves. Make that wish for yourself. May I feel at ease. May I feel peaceful. May I feel safe. May I feel content. May I feel strong. May my family, near and far, feel safe. Feel content. Feel strong. and live with ease. May all of my teachers in all of my life feel safe
may they all feel content. May they all feel strong. May everyone live with ease. May all people, far and near, all over this world, may they all feel safe. And content. and strong. And live with ease.
Well, we have a few things that I'm hopeful that we'll do in this next hour that we have together. It seems to me that this day went very quickly. First, I, I, I have a question from someone who's not in this room who emailed us a question that I'll, I'll be happy to try to respond to. And I, I also want to ask you if you have any questions about anything that I've just said up to now. Hmm? Yes, with the microphone, but I don't see anybody has a question. Can it be so that I so stupefied everybody that they, without a question? Okay. So I'll make up questions. No, there's a question over here, actually. This is what I'd like to do. I'd like to answer whatever questions you have now and up to when we're finished for today. I'd also like to do two more things after that. I'd like for us to uh, think together a little bit about the practice of ethics. You know, early this morning when I said uh, I, uh, I would... Um, I was actually hoping when I took up meditation that it was going to be good for my nerves, not that it was going to make me a nicer person. And it was good for my nerves, and it made me a nicer person. And I'm more happy about that. I think I'm happy about the nerves, but uh, I have a lot of pleasure about really feeling that I am more sensitive to the needs around me. I hope I am. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the practice of ethics in general. And maybe this question will fall in with some of that. And then I'd also like uh, for us to go back and uh, send well-wishing again to all the beings in the world, connecting to them in a way that, in yet another way, we, we know a certain number of people in the world but I want to suggest that there are techniques that really make you feel connected to everybody in the world. So we're going to do that. Or I hope we will. And this says, uh, this is a question from somebody. It says, uh, how do you forgive an adult child who has hurt and betrayed you? I am holding a grudge against a loved one which is harder than holding a grudge against an acquaintance. That's true, isn't it? That being mad at one of your people is really hard. Because you really, it's so complicated in thinking about, we not only want so much for our people to be well, but we want them to be well in relationship to us also. You know, you probably, you might be one of these people, but uh, you probably know somebody uh, who says, well, my sister and I are estranged, or my, one of my sons doesn't talk to me. I hope that's not your situation, because in my experience, that's very, very painful. It's not. It's not the same as the person who, that I was distressed with for all those years. I didn't need to meet that person, but we want so much for our kin to be in relationship with us, and we feel them, especially our children and our adult children. 
And then sometimes people get into these very difficult. So I, I don't know the answer to how to forgive an adult child who has hurt and betrayed you. But what I think, without knowing anything about the people, is I would try to be, I would try very hard to do two things. I would try very hard in my own mind to not be angry at them. Well, that's what she's saying, or he is saying, maybe how can I not be angry? I would try very hard to come to some place of allowing that to be the truth without being so activated about it. It's like saying, how could it have happened? Um, because being angry is is so painful and it's hard to get around and it really constricts the mind. If it were possible to be able to say, this is what's happening, and the truth is, I'm really, really sad about it. Usually when we're angry, we're sad about it. I'm really sad about it. I wish it were otherwise. I wonder what I can do to make it otherwise. Who could I enlist to help me make it otherwise? My own experiences with my own children over the years when I have, um, when they've reported to me that I behaved in a way that caused them pain, is I, uh, I'm happy to say, or I'm gratified to say, I tried to listen. You know, you, the impulse is not to, is to say, no, no, I didn't do that. Well, that wasn't my intent, or I couldn't possibly have done that. Anybody says, you hurt me with what you did, you say, I'm so sorry. I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. That wasn't my intention, but I'm really sorry. Um, somehow, if I think about resolving my, my, my discord with the former friend of mine, people say, how come you couldn't do that earlier? Both of you are such skilled communicators. You're in the business of communicating. Not skilled enough. Sometimes when, sometimes when you are really hurt enough, you lose the skills, maybe with the people that you love the most because there's so much at stake, you lose the skills. That's why often you need an intermediary. People go to talk to a therapist who has the skills. Somebody has to keep it together in their mind. I, you know, apologizing is a very good thing to do. Because even sometimes people say, well, I didn't really... I didn't do the offense. Why should I apologize? Somehow or another, for some reason that we can't see, we, a, a rift exists. To be able to say, if there's anything that I did, I apologize. In certain religious traditions, there's a, uh, a general apology that people make we do it here at the end of retreats. We apologize to the group for any way that we might have inadvertently hurt anybody's feelings. 
maybe in a, in a Dharma talk we said something that offended somebody. Maybe in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with them we hadn't been attentive enough or helpful enough or solicitous enough. You can't know about it. But when you, you're in relationship with people, people get hurt. I don't know the answer to this question, except that um, maybe, to, maybe to move as much as possible in the direction of a hurt, a hurt happened. May I apologize for it? Is there anything I can do to make things better? I really want more than anything for us to not have discord between us. You'd have to be able to say also, I love you, which is hard to say to somebody who's uh, really hard to say to a child who's, who's estranged themselves because it's so distressing to be able to say, I love you, and to really mean that through whatever practice means. There's a way in which presumably, I, I can't imagine it for myself because I have not had that exact, I have relatives who have that exact situation with estranged adult children. It's so painful, always, because they're your children forever. Just to be, to say the truth, just like it is, I'm really, you know, it, this causes me pain. I feel sadness. I apologize for anything that I did. I would really appreciate your helpful, tell, you're telling me how we can mend this. And really mean it. In some way, whatever we did fell wrong on that person. Who knows? It wasn't anybody's fault. It was the fault of that coming together. I don't know any better way. I hope that's helpful to whomever it was that wrote that in. I'm touched that somebody did. I'm always touched when people share something that's close to their heart, that's sensitive. That, I think, is really, especially in a group like this, because that, I really think, is the real meaning of um, noble friends of the whole of the holy life. We teach each other what to do in this complicated life. Last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago of a Wednesday morning, um, this is what I was going to have us do as one of the exercises in this part of the afternoon. So we'll just do it now instead of later. Of a Wednesday morning, I said to the group, you know, when we wish well to people and we think about benefactors, we often think about, especially in the category of benefactors, we think about our spiritual teachers. So. I think about Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein 
and Zalman Schachter and my grandmother who was in some way, um, I like to give her credit for being my first spiritual teacher. Um, my grandmother was not educated in a formal ways and she didn't teach formal spirituality. But the, the, the first teaching that I remember of significance from her that I can relate to Dharma teaching is she lived with us and uh, my parents both went to work um, and she lived with us and so she took care of me, she dressed me and bathed me and cooked food and braided my hair and was tremendously solicitous and the only thing she did, wasn't very solicitous about was moods. You know, if, I, if anything hurt me, she would take care of it right away. If I said, I'm unhappy, she would say, where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time? <laughs> and that I count as being the, my first introduction to the first noble truth, to the fact that life is continually difficult, that you could make the best. Of, it's not written that you're supposed to be happy all the time. This is what you get. And I mean, that's really, it's a fundamental dharma. Sometimes your knee hurts. Sometimes childbirth is difficult. Sometimes you lose people who are dear to you. We're not happy all the time. How can we make our minds content and appreciative of the chance to live another day in a body and a life with a mind with everything that happens? Not written. I was surprised. I think my first actual formal dharma Dharma insight, once I began to practice this, it suddenly occurred to me that it wasn't pain that this practice would be the end of pain, that pain was inevitable, but that you didn't have to suffer from it. And I thought to myself, it was a very big moment when I realized that I didn't have to be pleased in order to be happy, or I didn't have to be pleased in order to be content. Sometimes we're not pleased. I'm definitely not pleased with the climate situation or the wars or the inequality of wealth in the world and the political system and the, and the medical insurance system. There are a lot of things that need a lot of help. But the contentment that I have, which is not an inert contentment because I'm busy trying to fix that wherever I can, is a contentment if it's that way for lawful reasons because people behaved in such and such a way and here we are now. So if we change the way we behave, it'll be different. You know, when I first started to practice and uh, my friend Joseph Goldstein was one of my principal teachers, he, uh, in his particularly um, New York State twang, used to say, um, it's a lawful cosmos. Things happen because other things happen. But because of his twang, I thought he was saying it's an awful cosmos. <laughs> and um, I, that really, it really matched my kind of pessimistic view of the world. So I thought, this is it. I'm in the right place. But that wasn't what he was saying. Saying it's a lawful cosmos. If you step off a cliff, you fall down. If you, you know, if you get such and such a disease, you, you die sooner than later. Um, things happen. So my grandmother was the first, of, really, of those teachers. But when we think about teachers, we often think about uh, those kinds of teachers. But there are all kinds of teachers who teach us along the way. Um, 
somebody, so a few weeks ago of a Wednesday, I said to that group, can you think of somebody who, or some instance in which somebody did you a kindness, just for a moment? And I gave them the example of, um, I was in, I was in New York, uh, New York City just a few weeks ago, and um, uh, I didn't tell you this earlier today. No, I probably told it to somebody yesterday. I was pulling my suitcase through Penn Station, having gotten off the Amtrak and needing to get now on the 7th Avenue and go uptown, and Penn Station, really, zillions of people all, all crossing each other and all going someplace that they're sure where it is, and I'm trying to see the signs of where is the 7th Avenue, and I'm pushing my suitcase. And I, I push my suitcase uh, uh, in the direction of the tractor. I get to the where the 7th Avenue is, and uh, a woman with a cane said to me, where are you getting off? And I said, 72nd Street. And she said, oh, I'm going further, but listen, on 72nd Street, when you get off, there's an elevator way at the end of the platform, but you won't see it when you get off. You have to walk way to the end of the platform, and then there's an elevator there. So I get off at 72nd Street, pushing my suitcase. Everybody zooms up all the stairs, so I'm alone on the platform, and I'm pushing my suitcase way down, way down, way down, to the way front of the subway tracks. And there in the gloom, where I wouldn't have seen it, is an elevator. I push a button and it opens. It's one of those rickety kind of that you see in a thriller movie that somebody gets in that rickety elevator and it's bad, you know. And you get, I get in the elevator and I'm thinking all the you know thriller movies, but nevertheless, I get in it. I push the button. The door closes. It goes up. Ten seconds later, I'm out on 72nd Street without having to carry my suitcase up the two flights of stairs. And I thought about that woman who didn't need to tell me that. I didn't ask her, by the way, is there an elevator on 72nd Street? She was looking around and she saw me and maybe because she herself had a cane and was compromised in the walking, thought to tell me that's where the elevator is. And it so perked up my heart to think about that that woman saw it and think about think about other people, Not a, then you get happy, you think about yourself, you're unhappy. It probably pleased her to tell me that, and it pleased me retrospectively to that she knew that and that she thought to tell me. So I got really, it picked up my whole mood. I, I thought about it the whole weekend. I came back and I taught about it here, and I said, how about, you know, I, I thought about it, and I said, it's a tiny little moment in time, but I'm going to file it away in my mind because it perks me up every time I just told it to you and I saw you smiled when I told you about it. And it perks me up each time I remember it. <coughs> and my friend and teacher, Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shlomi, who died last summer, said years ago in his teaching, he said, when something really lovely happens to you, you have some experience that's pleasing to you, he said, make a deposit in your mind, in that bank account of pleasing moments. He says, at some point in your life, You'll be in a situation that's not pleasing, where you're uncomfortable, and you'll need to make a withdrawal from that <laughs> bank account. He said, so the moment passes, but the memory of the moment 
doesn't pass and the uplift of the moment doesn't pass. So we remember, I remember my grandmother because she lived with me all of her life and I remember my teachers because they taught me all of my life. But and especially my Dharma teachers with whom I stay in contact with. But the woman with the cane in Penn Station, I won't see her again. But somehow she exists in my mind and I made a bank account. So I asked people in the group to think about, could they think about some moment of a momentary kindness that they remember now? So I'll ask you, not only can you, but do it. Think about it right now. Have a 60-second think. <laughs> Thinking meditation. Did you think? Yes. <laughs> so, ready, set, go. Turn to the person next to you and take the next three or four minutes. You tell the person and they'll tell you what they thought about during that time. Ready, set, go. If you are at home and participating online, write us an email of what you thought of and send that right now. You could be three in a group. That's okay.
It's lovely. <laughs> it's fine. Now it's important. <laughs> it's very lovely to see that nobody has nothing to say. <laughs> In fact, it's lovely to see that everybody can be noble friends of the whole of the holy life. What will this is terrific. What would you like to share of that experience? Would you like to tell what you said or what to tell what moved you about it? What would you like to say? We can have a few shares and then we'll do our last thing together. There's, um, there's Michael in the back with a, with a share. With a berry. I wanted to be make sure that I share it because it's an amazing story. Um, about half, six months ago or so, I was really experiencing some financial pressure. And um, I got this call from a gentleman representing himself to be from Wells Fargo. And it sounded just like one of these fraud calls. Um, and he even had this voice like of a disc jockey. It sounded too smooth. And he said, um, he asked for my name. He also mentioned my mother's name, who's deceased. And he said, there's an IRA that is going to escheat to the state in three days unless I send um, over a fax to him um, saying that I'm the son and, and I have to get the death certificate and get that over. And I said, this has got to be a fraud. It can't, can't be for real. And I didn't want to send anything, so I went over to Wells Fargo branch, and they looked it up, and they said, yeah, there's something there, but we're not sure. And, and I even tried to find out whether he's a real employer or not at Wells Fargo. But I felt, okay, I need to, sounds like it's for real. And it was for real. <laughs> and it was an IRA with $30,000. <laughs> now, the part two of the story is that I have a brother and a sister so I called him up and I said, there's this IRA, and we have to, this one-third belongs to you. And they said, fine. And then my sister said to me, well, and she didn't know the financial difficulty. She said, you know what, I only need a couple thousand dollars. You take the rest. That's a terrific story. Thank you very much. I, I, you know, and... Uh, I know Michael, and I know that he's a lawyer and a good thinker, and I can imagine him thinking this is, this is like every other fraud call. 
Um, so I just wanted to say that it seems like a lot of the uh, the good things that happen to us happen right after something bad has happened. So it's almost like something bad happens gives the opportunity for someone to really help us out. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody else there. Elad. Um, I was uh, um, in a had a very stressful day where I was driving to Redwood City, which is not something I like to do at all, um, from Petaluma, and having um, a really uh, intense morning. And then I was having lunch with my daughter, who I don't see very often. And those are those lunches are very very important to me. And I had picked a restaurant that I knew nothing about. And I um, went into the restaurant. I was kind of really anxious and wondering whether or not she was going to show up. And the <clears throat> maitre d' waiter um, came over. And he put his arm and his hand on my back. And he said, I'm so glad you're here. He said, I hope that this is a really, really wonderful meal for you. He said, are you going to be dining alone? I said, no, my middle daughter is going to... He said, I'm looking forward to meeting her. <laughs> and all through the meal, <laughs> all through the meal, he would come over and he would touch her, he would touch me. He would say, is this to your liking? It was, it was just one of those everyday kindnesses that really made my day. Well, you know what, Elad... Uh, how many people felt lifted up by that story, that waiter? So the thing is, you tell a story like that, and it like goes in everybody's bank account, you know? That, and it, uh, it doesn't mean that every waiter in the world is going to be fantastic, but when you meet a waiter that's fantastic, you put it in your, in, your, in your deposit box, and you remember how, you remember it's in your deposit box, but it's also a piece of wiring that says kindness makes you happy. And hearing about kindness makes you happy. And there have been uh, meditation research experiments where they have people, before they meditate, uh, think about a kindness that they did to somebody that day, and then they meditate, and, the, and they report their meditations as being better. And then when they do controlled experiments, I don't know exactly how they do it, but they, it's not their kindnesses. They hear about other people's kindnesses and their meditations are better, that the mind gets uplifted and steadied by the awareness of goodness and that behaving good in the world picks up the world, not in a magic way on a ray, but maybe it does on a vibrational level, but it picks it up on an actual level. People feel better. Who has the microphone? Somebody's got... Anybody else wants to say something? There you go. Paula. Over here. Okay. Over here, and then we'll go there, and then we'll go there. Okay. Let's see. How do we get over there? Thank you. Oops. Thank you. Um, I wanted to share with everyone that I decided to volunteer today. And normally on New Year's Day, I'm with my family. Um, my ethnic background is Japanese, and New Year's Day happens to be a huge Japanese um, holiday, and it's when all of my family gathers at my aunt's house down in the South Bay, and around Christmas time is when she normally gets all the RSVPs because she sees us all, and she'll say, I'll see you on New Year's Day, and this past Christmas, I told her, well, I'm going to be um, volunteering at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center, 
and she seemed a little bit disappointed, and so did a lot of my family members. And I just wanted to say that um, I'm so glad that I was here today because I got to greet each and every one of you. And you just really made my day with your kindness and your smiles and wishing me a happy new year. Um, so if, if anyone is ever down and out, um, consider volunteering here <laughs> because it's, it's so incredible to be able to give and be of service and, you know, unknowingly just get so much love back. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That, if we had told you to say that, you <laughs> This is online. Well, while our microphone is moving around. Uh, a woman I backed into in my car and left a dent. A woman backed into my car and left a dent, and she recognized me and acknowledged the stress I am under, and she said she would handle it. Oh, I thought I backed into my, I backed into my car into somebody, and she recognized me afterwards and acknowledged the stress I'm under and said she would handle it. I get that. Having, after having an encounter with a challenging person on the way to the airport, a clerk at the check-in airport counter ignored my overweight luggage, didn't charge me, and we had a great talk about kindness. <laughs> when I was walking, there was a guy with a dog, and he made the dog sit down and wait while I passed, and the dog got up and started barking at me. And I talked to the dog nicely, and the owner of the dog patted me on the shoulder two or three times. That was a nice connection. <laughs> a dear friend came to visit me on a weekend when my beloved 13-year-old cat had just had surgery. Her survival was uncertain, and my husband was out of the country. Uh, the surgery had uh, been very upsetting to me. My friend showed up, knew instantly what needed to be done, get new cat litter, set up a new bed away from the other cat. She did all of this and then stayed with my two cats so I could keep a dinner engagement with other visiting friends. That wasn't a momentary kindness. That was like a week-long kindness. <laughs> and it was like a balm for me, so loving and comforting. This person says, I've had a million small kindnesses. Neighbors showed up to help bring the hay in before it rained. We didn't ask for anyone to come help. It's a very hard job, and they just showed up. That's terrific. Somebody who's watching us now and being here with us is harvesting hay. That's fantastic. <laughs> Go, Alan. May I, may I tell a story on you? The... <laughs> the meeting in your, in your study where, um, may I tell that story? I, I guess. Okay. So um, I, I had a remarkable idea passing through the checkout lane at um, Whole Foods. As I swiped my credit card, uh, the clerk asked me if I wanted to donate or a credit. And it occurred to me that if my credit card was associated with a feature that automatically rounded it up to the whole dollar. <clears throat> and instead of going to Whole Foods, it went into an account that I controlled. And um, that spare change 
would accumulate over time and become a considerable amount of money. And um, I told a few people this idea. They thought it was a pretty good idea. After a little research, it turns out that if 5% of people with credit cards did this, it would produce a billion dollars a year. And, and um, Sylvia and Jack were going to have a little intimate uh, retreat, I think it was last summer. And I thought, well, um, if this idea was going to fly, it needed to have some pretty considerable weight behind it. And of all of the people I could think of that would be the most influential, uh, it would be His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And I thought, aha, I have a couple of friends who have a connection with His Holiness, and perhaps I could make a presentation to them. So uh, two weeks later, Sylvia invites me uh, to her house to have a little talk before this retreat, and I have a, a deck prepared to present this idea. And she takes me into her study. She says, would you like to sit on the couch or in this blue chair? And by the way, this blue chair is the one His Holiness sat in when he was here uh, a year ago. So I'm sitting in His Holiness's chair making a presentation to Sylvia in the hopes of actually finding um, the Dalai Lama at the head of the table for this uh, charitable venture. So what you did is you let me begin at the end of the story. And that is an enormous kindness. Thank you. Well, thank you, Alan. May it happen. We're trying. May it happen. And, and, I, and I introduced him to, to the idea to Jack, and Jack took it from there, and it's somewhere in the process. But that would be amazing to be able to decide that the extra change goes to Spirit Rock or to something like some what what some prearranged. So if anybody can help with that, <laughs> <laughs> if you know how to do that kind of thing, yes. did anybody else want to say a passing thing? Go ahead. So my story was about you and how nicely you greeted me at the door. I just, I, I said, there's this woman at the door and I saw her greet everybody and say, Happy New Year, and she said it with such authenticity. And then when I got to you, you did the same thing to me and I, that, was, that was what I shared, so thank you. Thank you very, very much. You know, what does it take? Three seconds to say welcome to Spirit Rock, you know? That's a great story. Good. One more, two more. Back, way back there. There you go. You know, His Holiness likes to say, when people say, what is your religion? He says, my religion is kindness. Uh, um, uh, that actually was going to be my comment. Oh, I'm sorry. Not, not, not the holiness that I've been blessed as met all, probably all of us with incredible kindness on my journey. 
But I just want to name that the kindness from you today, just in your presence and being with us. Um, this is the first time I've been with you, and I just feel utterly... Um, um, I'm not sure what words to use. I just feel utterly grateful for the work you've done in your life journey so that you can be a teacher to me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I feel so lucky that um, I think to myself, how did this happen? You know, one of the things that I wanted to end with this anyway, so good. One of the, one of the, one of the things that uh, we teach often at the beginnings of retreats is it's really important to have in mind what you're trying to do. So that when people say to me, what's your practice? Uh, they're often expecting that I'm going to say something like, I sit, I do sitting practice, I do walking practice, I do Tai Chi or Qigong or some, a practice practice. And I say, you know what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to keep my mind clear and my heart open. That's what I'm trying to do. That's my practice, keeping my mind clear and my heart open. Towards that end, I have lots of technical things that I do. I do sit every day and I do try to be mindful all day long. And in addition to sitting and trying to be mindful as I go about my life, I also parent and partner and grandparent and study. And I'm part of colleague groups and professional groups and the Wednesday morning sangha. And all of them are techniques to remind me. I think when sometimes people come on retreat and they say, I'm you know, really pleased to see you. Uh, I haven't seen you since last year, and I'm very embarrassed to say that I haven't practiced since last year. And I feel bad when people say that, because what they really mean is I didn't sit down on my zafu since last year in that formal way. But we are all practicing all the time. We have been practicing since we were two years old, really, and start to figure out, I need to make a choice here. What should I do? Will this, you know, I need to get my mother's attention. What's the best thing to do? I need to figure out how to get along with people in the kindergarten. How am I going to do that? I need to do multiplication tables. How am I going to do that? I need to deal with this changing adolescent body. Who knew? Look at this. How am I going to do that? I need to figure out my sexuality. I need to figure out how to have a relationship. I need to figure out how to keep it together. I need to figure out how to keep a job. I need to figure out if I want to make a family or adopt a family or be a family or what do I want to do. By the time you get that all figured out, you have to figure out how to deal with the arthritis and the cataracts. <laughs> and the whole life, we're figuring out what to do, and we're trying to keep ourselves comfortable all the while. How can I do that in a way that makes me comfortable and makes everybody else comfortable and does not create any needless suffering? You know, sometimes when, when people say, you know, the, their expressions... Um, you know, to pass through this life without leaving any trace. I think without leaving, leaving a trace of suffering. My grandfather said about himself, my grandfather was a tremendously, um, he was peaceful. And he didn't have enemies. And he had, um, he had a practice of uh, 
uh, he had, I, oh, I haven't thought about this in a while. He had a practice of uh, making everything, making everyone all right. He would say, um, uh, my daughter Gladys, may she rest in peace, had a more uh, relaxed temper than my daughter Miriam, may she live and be well. So everybody had a declining phrase after their name because there's only th two things you could be. You could either rest in peace or live and be well. You know? So you can say the, one of those two phrases on everybody. And especially if you say may live and be well, you say, you know, my uncle, my uncle Jacob, uh, uh, may he rest in peace, told me that when I came to the United States, he'd find me a job, but then there weren't any jobs available, so he couldn't. May he rest in peace. My other cousin that didn't work out the business, may he rest in peace. My, um, my wife, um, I don't have to say her name. My wife, he had a third wife by this point. Um, <laughs> my wife, since she passed 90, got to be really crabby. So I couldn't be with her anymore. So I came to live with you here in California. And she can, until the rest of her life, live in my condominium. But it's my condominium. May she live and be well in that condominium. <laughs> so even the wife who displaced him out of the condominium, she should live and be well. Because he didn't have enemies in his mind. And I thought to myself, and he said at one point, he said, uh, he lived long. He was almost 100 when he died. And he said, you know, I'm going to live to 100 if I don't aggravate myself. And he said, and I try not to do that. And he said, and when I die, there isn't going to be anybody that doesn't like me after I'm dead. And nobody's going to say bad on me. Because he had a practice of not making enemies and not keeping enemies. And I would like to do that. I really, there's a phrase, the beginning metta phrase of a very standard metta chant is, may I be free of enmity and danger. And when I first heard that phrase, I thought it had to do with um, may nobody come after me and be dangerous. Uh, probably because I heard that teaching in the context of the Buddha having taught it to people that were now going out to teach on their own, maybe in scary places or to live on their own and be in jungles where there were wild animals and spirits, which people believed in at that time. So he gave them metta practice as a kind of an amulet to protect them against everything. But actually, I don't think that metta practice protects you against wild animals or other kinds of natural things. I think it protects you of enmity. And that enmity is always dangerous because it pollutes the mind. And that if I could say, this is my intention, I really want to take out enmity from my mind. I want to have no grudges. I haven't got a grudge now since I figured out the other one. I have people that I like better than other people. Everybody has people that they like better than other people. But that's not a problem. Um, I don't, I don't want to have lists. And I don't want to dwell in stories about who did me what or wrong or something. If I could erase those stories or erase the tendency to tell the stories. What I am doing at this point in my practice is should a story start to tell itself in my mind. This is my, this is my really current important practice. So a story starts to tell itself in my mind. I say, wait a minute, you have a choice. It's like this is the Buddha on the wise effort. You can choose a wholesome thought 
like peace and benevolence, may they live and be well, or rest in peace, or whatever it is. Or you can spin out the story of revenge. Nah, let's forget the revenge. Let's do this one. It's much better for the mind. So that's what I'm working on. And I thought, you're all working on something. Uh, Think about, if someone asked you, what are you working on for 2015? Do you want to stop something? Do you want to start something? A formal way to start the year would be to say, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept. Say it with me. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given. To abstain from taking which is not freely given. I undertake the precept to refrain from unwise speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from unwise speech. I undertake the precept to abstain from inappropriate use of my sexuality. I undertake the precept to abstain from inappropriate use of my sexuality. I undertake the precept. I undertake the precept. To abstain from those intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. Do you know, on the morning after, oh, at the end of that, when we all chant that together, the line that comes after that is, may these precepts be the cause of happiness. Because they are, if you do them. So I wanted you to think about, in these last minutes, if there was one particular thing that, I I assume you all want to take those precepts, because you just did. Um, Kala Rinpoche, who, who died some, maybe two decades ago, and was then very old, I was with him when he was giving bodhisattva vow to everybody in the room. And he said, don't worry about taking these vows. He said, don't worry that you might make a mistake and break a vow. He said, because you will. He said, the idea of taking a vow is it turns your mind in the direction of that. So it's not that lightning comes from the sky. It, all, it, it um, readjusts your sights in terms of where you want to go. So I told you, I'm trying to take out enmity from my mind. I'm trying to watch my mind uh, disguising uh, criticism as uh, helpful hints. <laughs> a friend of mine, I taught, that on, uh, I taught that earlier this year before Rosh Hashanah. I get to get resolutions twice a year. <laughs> and uh, the rabbi of my synagogue said, you said that last year. I said, I'm still doing it, so... I said it again this year. I'd like to stop making the helpful hints because they are criticisms. Think for a minute of what particularly what particular strength you'd like to strengthen in you. Want more patience? 
You want more diligence? You want to practice more? You want to get up every day and meditate in the morning? Do you want to stop using this or that? You could add your own personal intention for 2015. Just for a minute. Everybody's got one? Got? Turn to the person next to you and tell them, I plan to. Ready, set, go. Just a minute. Now comes the important part. You may actually not even know the name of the person next to you. You know, that, that, that's a really important thing. You, may not, you might not know, and maybe you do, but you might not know the name of the person next to you, but you know something way more important than their name and way more intimate than their name. So in the next 10 seconds, tell the name and you tell your name. Ready, set, go. Okay, here we are back again. And in the next, in the next three minutes, maybe even four, we could go over one minute, it's worth it. In the next three or four minutes, you take turns. Who's going to be in each, in each group? Let's pick out who is person one. Everybody decide who's person one. Okay, in each group, you got a person one? When I ring the bell, person one will give a blessing to person two, and they will say, in essence, John or Mary or whoever it is, you can put your hands on them if you want, 
may you in this year actually develop the patience that you want to develop or the whatever it is that you want to have happen. And I hope it for you. And Happy New Year. And when you're finished, the other person will do a blessing. Person two will do a blessing back on you using whatever you just told them and bless them that they should have that. Because why not? Ready, set, go. It's all right that we don't end. It's all right that people, it's all right that we go two minutes more because the truth is 
that there's nothing more pleasant than blessing and uh, either giving them or receiving them. Actually, when you think about it, goodbye means God be with you until we meet again. Did you know that? And we say, or we say, uh, oh, wow, until I see you again. But something about counting on seeing each other again. So may we, all of us, go forth, O people, and spread kindness in the idiom of the people. And have a wonderful 2015. And come back all the time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.